As this song is stated in your word echoes, all this world, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And we also recognize that your scriptures testify to the fact that the word became flesh in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And we beheld him as sent by the Father. We beheld him as risen up, becoming a curse for us, satisfying the wrath of God, dying in our place. And we behold him in the proclamation of the gospel in his resurrection, where death and the grave could not hold him. When we behold him in his proclamation of the kingdom, both pre and after his resurrection, we behold him ascended in your holy scripture. And now we worship him seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, interceding for His church, and presiding over, proceeding to reign, and continuing to reign over His kingdom forever and without end, until such time as every enemy is subject to Him and under His feet. Lord, we worship You for what You have accomplished in Christ our Lord. And we thank You, Lord, for the rich treasure of Your Holy Word that reveals to us, as the Spirit is pleased to use it as a tool, reveals to us the glorious beauty of your gospel. I pray this morning that our hearts would be stirred, our affections would be deepened, that our understanding would be quickened, and our confidence would be strengthened to understand and proclaim and to value your holy scripture. I pray that you would bind us together with cords that can't be broken, that you would unify and solidify your church in the goal of glorifying you and proclaiming your word so long as you tarry. Thank you for the benefit of this gathering here today. We pray that you would maximize it for your use. And at your table later, I pray that our hearts would be stirred and that we would be brought to the essentials, the foundation, and to the great ransom price of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn to the Holy Scriptures in our communion series in 1 Peter where we'll wrap up 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text will be verses 22 through 25. So turn there with me in your scriptures, if you would. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the word. The title of this morning's message is Exiled Brethren. Young people, just a quick uh, pop quiz for you. Peter refers to Christians by what term? Peter calls Christians what term in 1 Peter? Do you remember? Elect exiles, very good. And just uh, so that you remember what these words mean, uh, we are elect because we are chosen. We are exiles because far away from home. Believers, according to Peter, could be described as elect exiles. Elect because we are chosen by God. Exiles because we are in a foreign land or far away from home. And so chapter 1, the major theme, and we'll continue through the book, is how to live as an elect exile. In fact, that was the title of our last message, Exile Living. This morning is an extension of that theme, and the title is Exiled Brethren. We need to understand, Peter reminds us, that we not only are elect exiles as individuals separated for a time being from our ultimate home, namely reconciliation with the holy God and perfection forever, heaven or the new heavens and new earth, but we are exiled together with the saints that have shared our experience. 
That is to say, we're exiled among brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced the miraculous saving of their souls, and that changes our relationship one to another. And more than this, that actually provides for us means to endure during our time of exile. This morning, the aim of my message is to expound the connection between confession and conviction. We confess with our mouth our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess the truth as it is objectively laid out in Scripture, but this also comes with a certain conviction. That is a change of heart and mind by way of sanctification that results in real effects in the life of the believer. The effect in particular we'll consider today is love for the brethren. In other words, our confession, when it takes root in our soul, gives way to fruit in conviction. And this conviction includes, among its evidences, a sincere brotherly affection, a sincere brotherly love. With that introduction, would you stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence this morning? And let us consider 1 Peter 1, 22-25. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter continues to develop the theme of endurance despite the exile status of a Christian. You guys remember the example we used from Old Testament history of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They are the perfect example of exiles, right? So they're far from home. Where was their home, kids? Where was Daniel from? Where was his home? His home was in Israel or Jerusalem as the capital of his homeland. And then where was he exiled? Daniel was brought to a foreign land. Do you remember the name of the land, the, the great city? Um, not exactly. Daniel was exiled in Babylon. Very good. Babylon. So Daniel's in a land with his three friends far from home, Babylon. He's in exile from his homeland, Israel, with its capital, Jerusalem, and also the center of its worship. But the Spirit of God was sufficient to give Daniel and his three friends endurance. They followed the law of God, even to their own hurt, as we find in that account. Now, how much more sufficient... Would you suppose the scriptures would prove themselves to be for us as elect exiles? We can relate to Daniel in one sense. We are far from home. Yet, we have even more sufficient means, if you will, to hold us over, to cause us to endure so long as we make use of them than Daniel and his friends have had given the full testimony of Revelation, the New Testament as well as Old. In the last message in this text, 1 Peter 1, we covered verses 13 through 21, noting that Peter ties the believer's survival in hostile conditions to the following. First, the orientation of his soul. So in order for a believer, an elect exile, to endure, he must pay attention to the orientation of his soul, his mindset. Thus, Peter promotes three things under that category. He emphasizes sober-mindedness, holiness, and fear. The elect exile will endure so long as he is sober-minded. 
So long as he pursues holiness, so long as the fear of the Lord is a reality for him and his orientation of soul. Secondly, sufficient motivation. There are three major motive forces that give the believer endurance. We covered this in our last message as well. Number one, forthcoming grace. The grace of heaven and God's promises that are increasingly ours or ever closer to a reality in their fullest manifest form as we move closer to glory itself. Forthcoming grace is a ground or a means for endurance for the saint, the exile, far from home. Secondly, the holiness of God. God's purity and beauty and power and exclusive sacredness. The holiness of God is a sufficient motivation. And thirdly, our ransom price, the cost of our salvation measured in Jesus' blood, which is itself beyond material measure. And this brings us to number three, the object of our faith. What gives us endurance as elect exiles? The third point, our last message was the object of our faith, namely Christ, Christ the spotless lamb, Christ surpassing time. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And finally, Christ surpassing death. Through him are all believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Continuing on this theme, Peter adds one more to the list today. We'll discover what that is, a fourth category in our text, and that is that believers or elect exiles, endurance is tied to brotherly love. Our endurance is tied to our orientation of the soul, our mindset, tied to sufficient motivations as we listed them, the object of our faith, but also brotherly love. Here's a historical application for you. Some of you may recognize the name John Winthrop. John Winthrop was one of the founding fathers in some sense of our nation. So he was elected to be or appointed to be the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was a believer and he came over here with a band of Puritan Christians from the United Kingdom, from Great Britain, right? So the year is around 1630. The name of the ship is the Arbella. And this is the flagship of a fleet carrying a handful of settlers who will set up a new nation here on our shores. So around 1630, John Winthrop, governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, preaches a sermon foundational to the founding of our nation, of our country. It's entitled, A Model of Christian Charity. And uh, some of you may recall years ago, Joel actually expounded this sermon for us as part of a Sunday worship service. Now, John Winthrop delivered this address from the deck of the flagship Arbella on his way to build a country from scratch, a country that would come to be known as the United States of America. He did so with a small band of settlers. Now, think of this situation, hostile territory, far from home, an elect exile, if you will, setting up a nation from scratch on biblical principles, a small band of Christians to do this with. What was essential for this enterprise to be successful? Winthrop recognized a principle from Scripture. He identified himself and his, his band as a, quote, community of perils. He recognized that there are certain times in God's providence in history where a group of Christian is, Christians are bound together and they will survive with God's help as a community of perils. They're surrounded by many threats. They're maybe small in number. They're in a hostile environment. They live in a society who doesn't share their worldview, let's say. His contention was that when a small band of believers finds themselves in hostile territory, their survival in part depends on their sincere care for one another. Hence the title, A Model of Christian Charity. 
Furthermore, their exile status would serve as a model and testimony to others if they were faithful to imply to apply exhortations from the scriptures like that which we find in our text today. That is to say, there is no shining city on a hill without its foundations grounded on the Word of God. And the second portion of Winthrop's sermon includes that phrase, a shining city on a hill, and that's perhaps the most famous and quoted sometimes in our own political history. But if you catch the full uh, theme of his message, he recognized in his instance that he represented a community, the leader of a community of perils. They would only survive if they availed themselves of biblical means for endurance. Among those means was love, sincere care for the brethren. And if they did this, in spite of their small number, it would prove to be a testimony a shining city on a hill, a beacon for generations to come and for nations that surround them. Now, he could have chosen 1 Peter 1.22 as his text. Notice, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then there's grounding for this exhortation in the verses that follow. That leads us to a heading For us to unpack our passage today, this is the heading this morning. Brotherly love underscored by the following. Number one, brotherly love underscored by exhortation. So this answers the question, how should we live? Verse 22 encourages us, directs us to have a sincere, to cultivate and express sincere brotherly love one for another. So brotherly love underscored by exhortation. Second major point. Brotherly love underscored by transformation. This answers the question, how is this possible? It's possible because, in short, verse 23 says, we have been born again. And then number three, brotherly love underscored by citation, which is what assurance do we have of all of this? And to answer this question, the apostle quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 24 and 25, assuring us and grounding his exhortation on this quote from Scripture. So that's the basic outline this morning. First of all, brotherly love underscored by exhortation. How then shall we live? To borrow the question raised by Francis Schaeffer, this is an application question, a vision for worship question, a third use of the law question. Here's a little review. There are three uses recognized in what I think is sound theology for the law, three uses of the law. Sometimes their more technical names are civic, didactic, and pedagogical. Civic refers to uh, government in a society. Didactic refers to uh, uh, instruction. And pedagogical refers to instruction as to children. Now, sometimes these three aspects are referred to as curb, mirror, and guide as an illustration. Think of the first use of the law, civic, as a curb. It reminds us of the boundaries And it keeps a basic order among a people. If thou shalt not murder isn't enforced, then things can descend into chaos very quickly. And so that is the civic use of the law. Second use, didactic. The law is a mirror. It shows us our sin. Be holy as I am holy. We see as the refrain also quoted in 1 Peter 1 from the book of Leviticus. Part of the purpose of the Old Testament law is to show the perfection and the perfect righteousness the absolute spotless, blameless standard of God's moral purity. And as we see that, we, of standard of perfection, we recognize how far we fall short. 
And so that perfect standard reminds us that we are in need of a Savior. Many have all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no right, none righteous, no, not one. The poison of asps is under their tongue. They have together become worthless. We're at enmity with our God. These are all references in Scripture that are made clear by the second use of the law. But this morning, the third use of the law is primarily in view in 1 Peter 1, 22, And that is the guide use of the law. How should we live now that we are saved? We've recognized our need for a Savior. We seek to walk in a way that is pleasing to Him. Well, our scripture today in 1 Peter 1, 22 begs us to do the following. Having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth, that would be a reference to the law in so many words, obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Peter has called us to holiness. You remember? He says in verse 13, Be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 14, as obedient children, there again, reference to the third use of the law. Obedient to what? Obedient to God's directives, His commands, His law. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter has exhorted us to live as obedient children. Here he expands this concept by means, uh, he expands this concept, and as a means, he declares that purifying our souls will equip us for this end. In other words, having purified our souls by, by our obedience to the truth, we are then by this means equipped to sincerely love one another. That is to say, our sanctification and our obedience to the Lord is tied to the law. We are called to obedience. Obey what? We are called to obey the Word of God. The law of God that is laid out not as a means to justify us. Only Christ's law-keeping does that. The law of God as it's laid out as a vision for worship or as a guide for us as, or as a prescription in order for us to live rightly. Turn to John 13 for a moment. There are many parallels between John and Peter, the two apostles, as they both instruct the church through their writings. In John 13, 34, we have this reference again to the third use of the law. A new commandment I give to you, it's in the words of Jesus, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this also could be a foundational verse, a text for John Winthrop's famous sermon. There is a law that we are to follow as believers, summarized in this admonition by Christ himself, love for one another. And there is a purpose also stated in John 13. By this measure, you will know that you are my disciples, that people will know that you are my disciples. A shining city on a hill will not have anything to project, will not have anything to emulate, will not have anything significant unless its foundations are on the Word of God. How do we stack up by this standard? We contrast, even in our day, uh, in our day, Winthrop's call for voluntary charity with the pandering promises of the latest in the Democratic debates. I don't know if you guys have watched any of these debates of late in our political sphere, but they're in the Democrat, Democratic Party is vying for a candidate 
and who will eventually face Donald Trump in the elections for president of the United States coming in November. And what is the most common theme that I have perceived in these debates is all kinds of pandering promises. Promises to this category of people for free health care. This category of people over there to balance uh, the injustices of income inequality and so on and so forth. And this whole parade of pandering and promises presumes on this assumption. The money has to come from somewhere. But never once in these debates as I've listened has the question even been raised. Is the taxation necessary to fund free health care, social security, or any other ostensibly charitable enterprise? Is the taxation itself just? Let me tell you, if it is not, it is stealing. And if it is stealing, we are attempting to build a city on a hill by breaking the law of God. Such will never work. Obedience and true love, true care, true compassion, one for, the another, one for another, is not built on our law, not built on progressivism, not built on a redefinition of the purpose of society. It's built on obedience to the truth. A brotherly love that is sincere does not violate the law of God. Obedience is a means to the law for us to express sincere brotherly love, and the law itself in Scripture is the standard of truth. Time and again, Peter makes an authoritative appeal to truth, and he models this in his epistle. One might say, well, Peter has the authority as an apostle to proclaim Scripture in this capacity, does he not? Yes, he certainly does. But he goes a step further. He will make an exhortation he will call the church to do something, but he will ground that command invariably in Scripture that has preceded him. I want you to notice this pattern, if you will, exhortation and foundation. It's a basic structure. Peter alternates between a command and a foundation of that command in Scripture. Exhortation, foundation. Notice in 1.13. Here's an exhortation. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That command continues through, or that command exhortation language continues through 15, and then we have this shift to grounding statement in verse 16. Here's the foundation. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, a legitimate law is based upon the revealed word of God. It is written. Even Jesus used his language. Have you not read? It is written. He confessed as much to the devil. The defeater for the deceiver is to quote, to stand upon, to appeal to the universal, absolute standard of truth, which is the unchanging word of God. Notice in 1 Peter 1, uh, 17, we have this exhortation. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear, exhortation. Now here's a grounding statement, foundation, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And here he makes appeal to the word incarnate. Conduct yourselves with fear because Christ has come in flesh, the word has become flesh and dwelt among you and even was crucified and the precious blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for your sins. 
This continues in our text today. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, express this sincere brotherly love. And then but notice verse 23, since you have been born again. And then four, another grounding statement, foundational to his appeal is this. Verse 24, all flesh is like grass, is citation from Isaiah 40. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, can, this pattern continues even further in the course of the epistle. That is to say, in this exhortation, foundation, alternating structure model, Peter exemplifies that there is an unchanging standard of truth. And based upon that standard of truth is the foundation of sincere love. Sincere love is always and only rooted in the truth of God's holy law. Purity of the soul conditioned by obedience to the truth is a prerequisite for legitimate love. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. I cannot stress how important this is in our day and age. Again, purity of the soul conditioned by obedience to the truth is the basis of sincere love. What of the misguided idea. Notice how this is in contrast with the misguided ideas of love these days. These days, people base their ideas of compassion and love not upon God's unchanging word. They don't base them by and large on the purity of the soul that's been conditioned by obedience to the truth, but by shifting standards, by identity politics, by the gay, lesbian, bisexual, so-called, queer, whatever agenda, LGBT agenda, and so forth. In other words, by today's progressive standards, there is a call, a proclamation that goes forth in wicked and perverse culture to love all of these identities, these perverse sexual identities, the same way as the, quote, traditional ones, and therefore show sincere love to everyone. Why is this not sincere love? Well, because that idea, that value, is not based on a purity of soul on obedience to the truth. Purity of soul by obedience to the truth would tell you that a sincere love does not, uh, does not allow for a perverse redefinition. There are shifting cultural norms. Love so-called these days is rooted in all of these other influences the breaking of the law of God, the redefining things in our own image, the upturning and overturning perversion of the created order. Our text today, you read, need read no further than 1 Peter 1.22 to notice, to realize that these expressions of so-called love that are so popular in our day are absolutely insincere, artificial, deceptive, dysfunctional, disordered, perverse, and insidious. We cannot know what love is, neither can we express it sincerely, unless our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. This is the message of Peter's exhortation. Brotherly love, sincere love is underscored by this exhortation. Sincere love based on the revealed word of God, measured by his law. So important, so important. I remember I shared the pulpit loosely termed with another pastor, as far as I could understand, an unbeliever in a church in this city, in this town. And it was a funeral for an important individual 
in this community. And the theme of his message was the absurdity of life and the love of God, quote unquote. And his point was that there's so many areas of life that are absolutely absurd, but the only thing that gives us hope is the love of God. And he got both points wrong. First of all, if God is God, there is no absurdity in life. A complete fallacy. God is sovereign. He has ordered all things according to his holy purposes, both the destruction and judgment of the wicked and the salvation of those who's, who, of whom Christ shed his blood. Secondly, his idea of the love of God, I guarantee is perverse as well. In fact, I know this because I read a document on his desk upside down. I was sort of peeking during our preparation time, and it described the so-called local view where the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, allows for a local congregation to have homosexual clergy serve on the same level as anyone else out of uh, so-called, on the ground of so-called tolerance, acceptance, and love. No. This is insincere, artificial, deceptive, dysfunctional, disordered, perverse, and insidious. Why? Because that idea of love and that assertion of so-called tolerance does not come from souls purified by obedience to the truth, but on the world's definitions that seeks to overthrow the created order and exalt man's ideas in the place of God's law and word. Let it not be the case. Sincere love is based always and only on the word of God. Brotherly love, secondly, underscored by exhortation. Secondly, transformation. You might ask, how is sincere love possible? There are so many warring factions, even within us many times, that cause us to be in conflict and inconsistent, and sins that easily beset can stand in our way of expressing true godly love. How is it possible? Well, it's possible because a transformation has happened in the heart of every true elect exile. And Peter describes this transformation in verse 23 of our text. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We can love sincerely the brethren. We can grow in our relationships one to, the, one to another. We can embrace the purification of our souls by obedience to the truth because we have been transformed. Because we have been born again. Turn to John 3. Peter again is echoing the words of Jesus himself who revealed the fundamental transformation of the elect exile in terms of new birth to Nicodemus. One of the more famous passages in Scripture, this is the same chapter that contains John 3.16, but there is some explanation that precedes that famous verse, John 3.3, for instance. Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, the perspective, the inquiring uh, disciple, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is no new birth 
There's no fundamental transformation by way of the flesh. Man cannot save himself. In fact, whatever is of the flesh, Isaiah and Peter both tell us that it will wither like the grass and its glory like the flower of the field will fall. That which has been born again is not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Now, how do you know that you are born again? Or what is the, uh, what are significant markers of this fundamental change? Well, even in John 3, we have a hint of this, if not a stronger implication indeed in verse 14. And as Moses, Jesus goes on to say, by way of explanation to Nicodemus. Now, these are words of revelation associated with new birth. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him may have life. Now on that pole in the wilderness, there was a snake, a bronze serpent, which was a symbol, it was a type of a curse. There would come another who would stand on that same pole, if it will, or a pole that was signified by that moment in the Exodus journey. And this would be Jesus Christ himself, who was made a curse for us. So you see, all who recognize Jesus as taking the punishment we deserve by our sins being imputed to him and then him being slaughtered and stricken by a holy God, all who look to him and believe that he was crucified in your place, those are the ones who are transformed. Those are the ones who have been regenerated. They have been born again. And they are the ones who now have the possibility of loving the brethren. They are the ones now whose souls are opened up to obedience to the truth, to love, appreciate, and follow the principles and commands of our mighty God. This transformation, Peter goes on to describe by way of analogy. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He uses this planting analogy to describe the growing fruit or the fundamental change that is taking place in the heart of a believer that begins with regeneration and continues with purity of soul by godly law keeping and then evidences itself in fruit, among other things, a brotherly love. And this reminds us, again, it's an echo of Jesus' words. We'll turn to Matthew for this one, the parable of the sower. You don't need to turn there, but you recall, Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. Uh, sometimes better called the parable of the soils. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. So this is a seed that has fallen on soil inhospitable for growth. No regeneration, no born-again experience has taken place. But the final soil, you'll recall, is different than all the others. Verse 23, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Notice the seed of the word, that understanding. It says, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundred, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So the parable of the good soils is recalled, alluded to, and perhaps summarized in Peter's analogy here in 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is the unified testimony, this analogy of all of the apostles. Uh, think of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, where the apostle Paul writes that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word 
of God. This seed of the word is something that is absolutely supernatural. It is an incorruptible means that God implants sovereignly by his Holy Spirit into the heart, into the consciousness, if you will, of the new believer upon regeneration. And that seed will not be uprooted, will not be pecked from the ground by a bird, will not be a fall on stony soil. But if it is planted by the Holy Spirit in soil prepared by the same for its fruitfulness, it will prove imperishable and it will grow and it will produce fruit. And as the seed of the incorruptible word of God, of the imperishable truth of God's holy scripture begins to bear fruit in your soul, 30, 60, and 100 fold, what are some fruit? What is some fruit you might expect? Well, certainly the purity of your soul being shaped by obedience to the truth, overflowing in sincere brotherly affection one for another. That word brotherly love in Greek is Philadelphia. That, of course, is the name of a city in our nation. Again, hearkening back to some foundational truths at our founding. Now, as we look back to a John Winthrop sermon, or even the naming of a city, city in America, Philadelphia, we recognize that there was a time when those who were responsible for the foundation and the shaping of the, of the mindset, the worldview, and the culture, even the civic law of this nation, understood that its foundation was rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Without sincere brotherly love, that is to say, the founders, if you will, of Philadelphia recognize that there would be no lasting city. It is, in fact, when our souls are purified by obedience to the truth and this sincere brotherly love works itself out in relationships one with another that any possible, valuable, and enduring society is created. Let us pray that we would repent. Repent in this land. We look at the name of the city of Philadelphia and it condemns us. Why? Because cities today are not built on that notion of brotherly love shaped by purity of soul through obedience to the law of God. No, cities today are built on any and all perversions of whatever values happen to blow across the cultural landscape of our apostate country this day. Nevertheless, the scriptures return us to the foundations, do they not? Brotherly love is underscored by the exhortation, the standard of truth, obedience as a means, sincere love as fruit, transformation, regeneration of the soul, this analogy of the seed. And what is the seed? It is the living and abiding word of God. This brings us to our final point this morning. Brotherly love underscored by citation. Citation just means quotation. Um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. In 1 Peter 1, 22, 24, the apostle says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So again, exhortation followed by foundation. And where does this foundational statement come from? Well, it comes from a prophet of old. Yes, Isaiah. It's in the context of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 1, notice. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And notice with careful attention verses 3 and 4. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up 
and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then we have our text. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Verse 6 continues, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Peter knows that the foundation of the church, he knows that the endurance of the exiles who are out uh, in this country, this region of Asia Minor, you know, Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and so forth, that the only way that this foundation, that the foundation of the church will prove strong enough if it is, if it is built on something unshakable. Nothing of the flesh or the corruption of the flesh will suffice. Only the word of God will stand forever. This raises the question, what is the flesh? Well, perhaps you could write down this definition. By uh, context, I believe we can derive that the, the flesh can be associated with everything or passions um, well, there's two phrases. I'll get to those in a minute. But as we see the idea of flesh in context in the rest of Scripture, think of all that is subject to corruption of, in a fallen world and uh, of our sin nature. All that is subject to corruption in a fallen world and corruption of a sin nature. That would be the temporal, the fading, the fleeting, the passing effects of the fall. That would be the flesh. There are two phrases in 1 Peter 1 that in context identify the flesh in particular. And the first is in 1.14, 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you could substitute that phrase, may I submit, for flesh. All passions of your former ignorance are like grass, you could say by way of connection there, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. A second key phrase, identifying again all that is subject to corruption in this fallen world, this would be 1 Peter 1.18. And 1.18, another key phrase, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So we have passions of former ignorance and feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, substituting that particular example of the flesh, verse 24, putting two and two together, all feudal ways inherited from our forefathers are like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Can you think of anything associated with passions of our former ignorance that would fall into this category of flesh? There's too many to mention. Some of the things that we mentioned before. Passions of former ignorance would refer to the idolatry, the paganism, learning from our sinful neighbors. Again, the corruption of this fallen world and that which is associated with our fallen nature and the passions, the desires that are shaped by our sinfulness. Love of self, substituting other authorities other than the word of God. The uh, pressure that comes from a culture where our desire to conform might lead us to compromise our Lord. The uh, seek to have a, uh, seeking to have a comfortable and easy life, 
shunning the call to suffer for Christ's name because persecution, sometimes by way of mockery, other times by even physical harm and hurt, is too much for us to bear. Why? Because we are tempted and led away by passions of our former ignorance, looking out more for ourselves, not willing to take up our cross and follow Christ no matter where that might lead. But as obedient children, we have the ability, because of our transformed souls, through the regeneration and the fruit of the same, to purify our souls by obedience to the truth and begin to increasingly reject the things of the flesh, the passions of our former ignorance, and increasingly disavow and uh, reject the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, the cultural norms, the things that uh, seem to govern the day, the way that the majority of the society operates. There was a small band of fish that were swimming upstream, if you will, in the majority culture when Peter was writing. And can we relate to them in any way? We're larger in number, but yes, we live in a world that does not share our worldview as Christians. Uh, sometimes it seems increasingly so these days. Well, we should conduct our time of exile here with fear of the Lord more than the fear of culture or the fear of man and honoring the Lord and His law more than the feudal ways inherited even from our forefathers who have grown apostate in this day and age. These things are things of the flesh. They will not stand. The ways inherited by our forefathers, the passions of our former ignorance, they're here for a moment, but they are fleeting. They are like grass in the field and the glory of a flower. It's there for a little bit of time and then it withers with the changing season or the lack of rain, or the trampling of an invading army. All flesh is like grass. Jesus uses similar language when he says, Do a foolish man builds his house on sand. If you build your assurance, your security, your values, your worldview on ways, feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, or passions of your former ignorance, the storms and trials of life will come and prove your foundation insufficient and will wash your edifice away. But if you build your house on the rock, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, which is referenced later in chapter 2, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The storms and the winds and the floods can come, but you will remain secure. Why? Because the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whereas all flesh is like grass, the chief cornerstone, the word of the Lord remains forever. I want you to notice something. Now these days, I may have gotten you to stage one of recognizing and hating the flesh. But what about stage two that we often long for? That the flesh itself would wither. Now there is a desire in the heart of every true believer that ways inherited, futile ways from our forefathers or passions of our former ignorance would actually go the way of the buffalo, if you will, would be destroyed, would be stamped out. We lament that they seem to thrive at least, even for a moment right now. What is the withering force? What will finally cause the grass of the flesh to wither? The glory of the field flower of the passions of former ignorance to die. This is encouraging. It just struck me this week as, again, as I was looking at Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to notice the instrument of withering, if you will. What is it that will destroy these things? Isaiah 40 verse 7 tells us as much. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. The flesh will be destroyed. The passions of former ignorance, the futile ways inherited from our forefathers will be destroyed. They will wither and they, were, they will fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. That word for breath is ruach. You guys remember that word? It's synonymous with spirit, breath, and wind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth and the ruach hovered above the waters, the spirit of the Lord. And later on in the Genesis record, God caused this Ruach wind to blow and the waters subsided. They receded in the case of Noah. In the case of Exodus, two references for a future note. As the uh, Exodus 10, 13, in the case of plagues, Exodus 14, 21, in the case of the crossing of the Red Sea, both involved the wind. The Ruach of the Lord blew a plague of locusts and caused all of the prosperity of the fields uh, in the uh, harvest of Egypt that boasted such wealth on the Nile to be destroyed in the moment. The breath of God, the Ruach wind, blew in a plague of locusts and caused the provision of that great empire to wither overnight in a day, if you will. In the case of the Red Sea, the Ruach wind, the breath of the Lord, blew across the surface of the waters all night long. What happened, kids? Do you remember what happened at the Red Sea? When the wind blew, what happened? At the Red Sea, remember? Moses and all the people of God are standing at the shores. The wind blows all night, and what's created in the middle of the sea? Remember? A, very good, a pathway. So the people of God follow through. And then after they're all safely on the other shore, then what happened? That's right. Pharaoh and his armies came. And the Ruach wind ceased, if you will. The seas collapsed on Israel's enemies. The breath of God caused the chariot-wielding armies of Pharaoh to be snuffed out, to wither the glory of that flower, to fade in a moment when his wind blew across the landscape of the Red Sea and then crushed all of his enemies underneath the waves and waters of judgment. Now, as we turn back to 1 Peter we can also cross-reference to 2 Timothy 3.16. The Word of God is inspired. Uh, it's God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable and is theonoustos in the Greek, which literally means God-breathed. That is to say, the breath, the ruach of God is associated with His Word. This brings us back, tying all these threads together to our text today. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And my point to you is the word of the Lord causes the flesh to fall. The word of the Lord causes the flesh to wither. Those things that we have associated with rebellion against the Lord, his breath, his word, his power, his spirit, his wind, if you will, destroys those things. Imagine what force the church of Jesus Christ has at her fingertips unrealized even right now. It is for lack of preaching and proclaiming the revealed word of the Lord with authority and without equivocation that the flesh thrives in this day and age to a large degree, may I submit. And when the word of God is proclaimed by God's ordained means, lived through the brotherly love fruit of his believers, proclaimed from the pulpits in this land without apology and without compromise, that wind will blow, and by His grace, 
it will cause the flesh to wither and to fall. It will cause God's enemies to be drowned under the Red Sea of his judgment. It will cause his locusts to devour the pride of his enemies. It will cause the floods of his judgment to recede to make safe passage for his people. For a way to be made in what was a barrier and signaled certain doom for his people to enter into the promised land. It will bring from spiritual death new life by the power of regeneration. As we've already mentioned, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this picture of regenerative power of the Ruach wind spirit breath of God goes all the way back to Genesis 1-2 and all the way forward to our text today. Since you have been born again, uh, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word is confirmed. Final point this morning, subpoint First 1 Peter 1, 24, the second part of the verse. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The church of Jesus Christ in Cappadocia, Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus, and Asia had heard the word of the Lord. They had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had been proclaimed to them just as it has been proclaimed to us. We read as much in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but listen, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. One means this morning to obey the Lord and thereby purify our souls so that we might grow in sincere brotherly love among other fruits of the Spirit is the Lord's table spread before us today. It is here that the gospel is proclaimed to us in picture just as it has been proclaimed to you in word. It is here at the table that the elements testify without the shedding of the blood of the spotless lamb, there is no remission of sins. And it is here that the elements signify and testify without the broken body of the substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ. There is no entrance into the holy place and the presence, the sacred realm of God's uh, dwelling with man. But just as the word has come to us by way of good news in our ears today, it comes to us by way of good news at this feast at the Lord's table. So let us embrace it obediently. Let us come to the Lord's table this morning if you are a believer and only if you are a believer in this room with your heart prepared to realize its significance. Remembering that it is the precious blood of Jesus Christ alone the lamb without blemish or spot, for known before the foundation of the world, that is the precious price, the ransom price for your soul. Remembering that his body did not stay broken forever, but after three days was raised, and this signaled hope for our own resurrection one day. And this body yet 40 days after that moment would be ascended before the right hand of the Father, thus to enter into his session, which means his rule. And his intercession, which means his prayer on behalf of his church to represent us before the Father as our high priest forever. Remember these things at the Lord's table this morning. Let us transition in prayer. 
Dear Lord, we thank you that our ears have heard your holy word. We pray that its incorruptible seed, its imperishable seed, would be planted in soil made fertile by the Spirit in our hearts. We pray that it would spring forth in the life of every believer in fruit, indeed the fruit of the Spirit, including sincere brotherly love. We pray that we would embrace the means to grow in these areas by obedient faith, purifying our souls according to the truth, obedience to your truth, your word. I pray, Lord, for the lost within the range of this message, that faith would come to them by hearing of the word of God, that the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit would be evident in their own souls, bringing them from spiritual death unto born again, regenerate new life. And I pray that they, by your grace alone, through Christ's shed blood alone, could soon join us at this feast, at this table, realizing the communion fellowship that we have with the Holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.